and I didn't get a very uh, impressive answer there. Uh, what are we being asked to consider in Hebrews 3.1? Jesus. We're being asked to consider Christ Jesus. And to consider something, is that a shallow word or a superficial word? If you consider something, is there effort that's put into it? Yeah. Um, whenever we study the scriptures, it's often that we get caught up on ideas without thinking about their relationship to Christ. And I'm trying personally to break that habit and to find how Christ is in, uh, I believe this is Ephesians, it says, the truth as it is in Jesus. You familiar with that verse? Every one of our beliefs in the Scripture means something only in the light of Jesus Christ. The impact that it has upon our view of Him, our perception of Him, uh, how it, it educates our understanding of God and how he treats us, how he interacts with us. All of our doctrines as Adventists, as Christians, mean the most when we understand what it tells us about Christ. So this morning, this evening rather, is an invitation. Uh, I'd like you to try, as we go through this study, to think about what it tells you about Christ. Let's uh, pray. I'm going to kneel. I'm going to invite you to do the same. I know we've already done it once, but. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can close the Sabbath uh, thinking about you, discussing you, meditating upon you, considering you. I ask that you would also consider us. The scripture says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And Lord, uh, not knowing very many people here, uh, I would still guess that we sometimes wonder why you think of us at all. But that you've done it to the great degree that you have is very impressive. And we have a lot to consider when we think about Jesus. And we're very grateful that you're a man worth considering. So as we open the scriptures, Lord, it's always my prayer that you would be our teacher, that you yourself personally would join us in our conversation as we open the scriptures, that you would speak through it personally to each one of us, and that you would bless us with a sense of your presence and awareness that we have been where you are. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. John chapter 5. Uh, how many of you went to regularly the adult Sabbath school? Uh, hold on a second, let me phrase that differently. How many of you attended a Sabbath school class, an adult class, that was going through the quarterly, the adult quarterly? Okay. The quarterly, the past month, uh, excuse me, past three months, last quarter, was uh, all based upon a quote from Ellen White. Uh, it's found in a couple of places. I'm going to read it to you from the book Gospel Workers. It says that Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men 
as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. It's the first time anybody's ever heard that. You've all heard it before. Cool. I'm going to read it one more time, and then I'm going to ask you a question. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. I'm going to ask you, what is true success? What does that mean? Okay. To reach a goal. Is there anybody, anybody up on the? Can one of you guys move those lights for me? Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, to reach a goal. Yeah. Success. All tied up here. Success as seen from God's perspective. Okay. Like that. Any other ideas? Hey, now I can see you. Any other ideas? What is true success? Uh-huh. appreciate your answers uh, none of your answers are necessarily wrong uh, or, or right because not from my perspective I didn't ask that question with a specific agenda I wasn't trying to get a specific answer out of you but I want you to keep asking yourself that question what is true success when Jesus had success in reaching people he had the truest form of success He had a success that was immediate and a success that reached out into the future. Let me explain that to you a little bit more and then we'll jump into John 5. Jesus as one that desired their good. Jesus showing people his sympathy, ministering to people's needs. Jesus winning people's confidence was not just success while he was having that conversation. He wasn't just having success while he was speaking with Josh. I found a way to slide you in here. Been using Josh as my example here or something. If I'm having a conversation with someone, success that I have with that person is not limited to my interaction with that person. The type of success that Jesus had impacted his whole ministry. The success he had with one person impacted how he was going to interact with people down the line in his ministry. So let's go to John 5. I'm going to share with you a story and look at some things in this story that I believe are specifically relevant to Adventist as we seek to fulfill a specific mission at a specific time in Earth's history. I believe this story is very relevant to us. I'm going to read through 
uh, quite a bit here. And then as I did this morning, we'll stop and go back to the first verse and work through them one at a time. John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel, supposedly, went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there which had an infirmity for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. It's a very interesting story. Uh, go back to verse 1 here. It says that there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to that feast in Jerusalem. And most commentators, if you'll study this out here, uh, will acknowledge or, or will agree that this event in John 5 happened at the feast of the um, Passover of A.D. 29. Now, Jesus began his public ministry in what year? A.D. 27. He finished his ministry in the spring of what year? 31 A.D. And so this is... Um, Passover is the spring of the year. Jesus started his ministry in the fall of the year, A.D. 27. So this would be about a little over a year into Jesus' public ministry. So Jesus goes to the Passover, A.D. 29. And that that is, 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 remember A.D. 29? This will show up on the quiz next week. Shouldn't hint. that got to make you pay attention and not know what the questions will be. So... That'll be an important uh, point, though, when we get into uh, this a little bit further. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem. By the sheep market, there's a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Now, the pools of Bethesda, I said pools. It is is literally, uh, historically, archaeologically, there were two pools there at Bethesda. They were very large pools. Uh, they were Olympic size or larger, 130 feet by 165 feet on the one pool, 165 feet by 195 feet on the other pool. That's a really big pool. And they had walkways all around them and a walkway down the middle, and they were covered with porches. These uh, pools and the, the whole um, setup was located just outside the temple. So literally, if you were at the temple going to church that morning, you could right away find yourself at the Pool of Bethesda. And that's important geographical context because what happens at this pool is such a contrast to what was happening in the temple in the days of Jesus. The Pools of Bethesda and Bethesda, by the way, in the Hebrew. Another good quiz question. Means what? Does anybody know? House, yes. Of? 
Palace of what? No. What did you say? The House of Mercy. The House of Mercy. Bethesda. In the House of Mercy, at the pools of Bethesda, lay, verse 3, a great multitude of impotent folk. Blind, halt, withered. Literally, you could retranslate that in more modern English. These were invalids. Blind, lame, paralytic. And a whole lot of them. If you think about two pools, 165 by 130 and uh, 195 by 165, with approximately 20 feet between them is what archaeology tells us, plus the walkways all around, I would ask you the question, how many people could you pack into that pool, around the pool? Quite a number of them. In fact, when you read the story a little bit later, uh, let's actually look down to... Verse 13, there were so many people at the pool of Bethesda that the man who was ultimately healed couldn't tell anyone who uh, had healed him because it says Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. There were so many people at the pool of Bethesda that after Jesus healed the man, he simply disappeared into the crowd. Now, take a room like this here. Uh, It's a fairly large room uh, with a number of us that are sitting here this morning. Uh, Let's play a little Where's Waldo. Do you think that I could disappear? No. Maybe if you were standing all together in a really tight crowd, uh, could I find a way to slide out and some of you not be able to see me? Um, But there were a lot of people at the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus simply disappeared. And what I want you to get, if I can say it this way, you know, I like the imagination. One of my biggest objections to technology and media is it destroys your imagination. And I want to ask you, try to put yourself there. Try to imagine, use your mind, visualize yourself being at the pool of Bethesda that morning and seeing all of these people, the very worst type of people physically. These were not athletes. They were not the greatest specimen of humanity. They were invalids, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and a lot of them in one spot. Sitting at the house of mercy they were. And the irony is, at the house of mercy, just outside the temple, they were waiting for a superstition. An angel, verse 4 says, to come down to the pool at a certain season and trouble the water. Whoever first Lands in the water after it's troubled, supposedly made whole of whatever disease he had. That's hocus pocus, folks. I know the, uh, the wording on the verse is a little bit interesting. God does not work by magic. There was no angel that went down and stirred the water of that pool. I believe here in this verse, the Bible is stating it as the way it was perceived by people in society at that time. And Jesus himself is going to disprove the foolishness of such a superstition throughout his public ministry. Jesus went to towns, and when he left, there were no sick people in the town. What kind of cruel, ridiculous, foolish God would tantalize and tease people with some sort of garbage like this? I do not believe there was an angel. You can pray about it and decide for yourself. I do not believe there was an angel at all that went and stirred the pool. 
archaeology actually says that those pools were constructed possibly starting with King David and the other kings of Israel who were channeling rainwater and um, other water that was coming into the, the city into those pools as a source of reserves. Uh, Jerusalem as a city was constructed in such a way by the kings of Israel over time to be able to withstand a 20-year siege by an outside army. In other words, there was enough food and water inside Jerusalem that the Roman armies could have sat outside Jerusalem in 70 AD for 20 years, and it wouldn't have affected anybody inside. And the archaeologists have identified that those pools were fed in part by an underground network of springs that had been constructed by the kings of Israel. Some of it by David, I remember, and I think Hezekiah also. And so the real idea here, the most likely scenario, is that on occasions there would be an extra uh, burst of water that would come into the pool and would agitate the water on the surface, and that would be then attributed to an angel and people would try to get in and get healed. Uh, And again, I think that archaeology is probably a little more correct there than the idea of it being an angel. I want to say something, though, about Christ. Jesus loves to demonstrate his reality, the reality of himself, in the face of superstitions. The silly things that we do to try to find healing in our life look really silly in comparison to what Jesus offers. The really interesting thing here about this story is that Jesus is there at all. Verse 9 tells us that this was a Sabbath morning. And I want to ask you, why was Jesus at the pool of Bethesda on a Sabbath morning? Not a rhetorical question, by the way, if you have an idea. Why was Jesus there? Jesus was looking. Jesus was looking for someone that needed him. Church is such a funny thing. We go to church. We go to be around the people that are like us. We've been apart all week. We go to our jobs. We hang out with our coworkers and have to deal with their trash talk and their irreligiosity and those sorts of things. And so we look forward to going to church because we can be with like-minded people, and that's fine. Praise the Lord for being around like-minded people. But Jesus this morning went to a place on purpose where he knew that people would need him, not who would simply just agree with him. I don't know how you feel about Jesus in your life. I know a lot of us are tempted to think that we must do something in order to get God's attention. I know a lot of us think that we must be or behave or conduct ourselves in a certain way so that God would approve of us. It's not true. It's a lie. Jesus wants to be, desires to be, in the place where people need him. And I want to say this this way. Jesus isn't just comfortable being in a place where people need him. Jesus is comfortable being in a place where those people that have a need are particularly offensive. This was not the high class of society, as I said a second ago. This was the very worst of people in terms of physical presentation. And what's most interesting about this is Jesus found this one guy. A certain man, verse 5. 
38 years a paralytic. And I'm going to read you what Ellen White says in The Desire of Ages about this man. The Savior saw one case of supreme wretchedness. In our politically correct world, that would be highly offensive. But this guy was supremely wretched. He wasn't just bad. He was really bad. No, he wasn't just really bad. He was wretched. No, he was supremely wretched as a human being. And Jesus found that man. Not only that, she goes on, his disease was in a great degree the result of his own sins. Jesus found a man who was wretched supremely and who was not a victim. You and I sometimes, people in life, are the victims of other people's decisions and mistakes and foolishness and and lack of conversion and spirituality or their lack of morals. Often in life, we are the victims of other people's decisions. It's just true. Unarguable even from a Bible point of view. You break the law, Parents, you break the law, it says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the, what? Third and fourth generation. Is it the fourth generation's fault that they're getting what they're getting? No, they're the victims of their parents' decisions, their grandparents' decisions, their great-grandparents' decisions, and on three and four generations. But this guy was bad, and it was his own fault. The Jews around, Ellen White says, looked upon him as being the recipient of God's judgments. He was that way. It was his fault. They knew it was his fault. And tough. Deal with it. God's punishing you. Do you know how many times we have told ourselves that in our own mind? What do you struggle with in your life? Don't say Don't, don't answer it. Just think about it. What are the things that you do that you know you shouldn't do that you struggle with internally? I know God doesn't like this. And I know what he's going to do to me. It starts to play on your psyche. Something bad happens within a short period of time, maybe a few hours, days, weeks later, and the mind instantly, oh, I know why God did that to me. Anybody like that? Is that just me? I didn't get any, oh, I got one hand. Okay, two hands. Oh, it's a little bit better now. Anybody else like that? You, you, you struggle with these things? I, I'm doing what I know I shouldn't be doing. I, I, don't, I don't know. I eat Twinkies or something. And, you know, God's just not blessing me. That's not true. This is so ridiculously not true. Jesus, this Sabbath morning, went to where the worst people are, found the very worst of those people, and it was all his fault. And Jesus says, fine. I don't care if it's your fault. I like finding people like you. In the Desire of Ages, it's very clear when you read this that Christ had singled this man out. Jesus knew. I didn't didn't bring this with me, but if you read back through the Desire of Ages, I think you'll find it. Jesus knew what he was doing this morning. He knew he was going to heal somebody, and he was there looking And she says, he singled this guy out. I'm not quoting, that's my own words here. That that he singled this man out. He desired to heal every person in that place. But he knew that he couldn't do that without arousing so much uh, hatred from among the Jews. So he got to pick one guy. I just find that fascinating. He got to pick one guy. 
And so he picked the absolute worst one. Until I had read this and studied into this, I thought this was just some random thing. Jesus happened to be there. It was maybe an accident that Jesus was there. And just happened to be that Jesus was looking at that guy. But that's not the case. I want to emphasize this. I'm being redundant, I know. But I want to emphasize that Jesus was there on purpose. He was looking for that man on purpose. That guy was bad. No, he was the worst of all the people that were there. And he was bad because of the dumb things that he had done in life. And Jesus was there for him. And here's my point. You know that you have to do absolutely nothing to get God's attention. Don't have to clean yourself up. Don't have to change what you are. You don't have to pretend that you're something that you're not. God is so comfortable with humans, the worst humans, that you need to do nothing. It's hard for Adventists. Law-oriented, works-oriented, keep the Ten Commandments, to think that there's something, and it's a human problem as well, not just Adventists, but to think that there is something that you need to do is not only wrong, it's very wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. Once Jesus gets hold of you, he does want you to do a few things. You understand what I'm saying. Verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he asked what I think is a ridiculous question. I'm sorry, I'm going to be a little bit human. This question was rude. This question was torture. This question was provocative. It was borderline insulting to this man. Because for 38 years this guy had been that way. For many, many uh, instances of the troubling of the pool, the guy had tried to get into that pool. And Jesus full well knew the answer to that question. And he knew the answer was going to be no. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm being pretty honest with you when I say that I actually don't like that question. But, you know, God likes to ask questions that people don't like. And he's God, and he can do that. And I'm okay with God doing whatever he wants to do because he asked that question for a reason. But I get to be human, and God is okay with me being human, and I don't like that question. Would you like that question? No, you wouldn't like that question. Not from your perspective, but if you were that man, would you like that question? No. The impotent man answered, and I wish I knew the real emotion. I can imagine him saying, with some depression, Sir, I have no man. When the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But it's worse than that, you know, because Ellen White says that for a brief moment, hope sprang up in the guy's heart. You've got to read this in the Desire of Ages uh, this evening, if you can, tomorrow morning. She says that the question that Jesus asked actually aroused a bit of hope. But as he lifted his head off the concrete that morning, the stone, and he looked at the pool, the realization of how silly that question was hit his heart and his mind hard. The hope was shattered by the reality that he was perfectly paralytic and he was not going to make it into that pool. What he perceived Jesus to be saying was, hey, 
Do you think your lottery ticket has the right number on it? That you're actually going to get into that pool at some point and be made whole from your case and your situation? You and I are just like that guy. Jesus asked this question, and we say, what are the odds that God would change my circumstances? Wow, what a great, dumb idea. No, it's not going to happen. Jesus said in verse 8, what to me is one of the most interesting set of words, not because it's rise, take up thy bed, and walk, but because of what it's missing. Now, you know what's missing here in this story? In Jesus' phrase, do you know what's missing? The ideas. Something's missing. Something that Jesus, often throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, throughout the Scriptures, something that Jesus often asks when he works a miracle. Hmm? A what? Okay. Do you believe? It's a good one. Faith has made you whole. I'm sorry? Don't tell anyone else. Don't tell anyone else. Okay. Yes, he said that sometimes. There's one other thing. Belief is one part. He asked for no action. Just think about this. The guy was a paralytic. How was he going to perform that? When in the Old Testament... Naaman had leprosy. God told him to do what? Go wash in the Jordan seven times. When Jesus spit on the ground and made some clay and smeared it in that blind man's eyes, what did he say to the blind man? Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. When Jesus, when God gave the Israelites the miracle of manna six days a week and then preserved it with an additional miracle on the seventh day every week, he asked them to do what? Go out every week, every day, only gather enough for one day every day except for the sixth day, and then gather two portions. When, when God saved Noah, what did he ask him to do? To build an ark. When the woman who had the issue of blood was healed, she had to reach out her hand and touch even just the garment of Jesus. Over and over, over and over, over and over again in the Scriptures, Jesus asked either one of two things. He asked you to believe, or he asked you to believe and go do something and demonstrate your belief by your actions. This guy was so bad. I want you to get this. This guy was so bad, Jesus asked nothing. 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 He asked him to stand up. No belief. No faith. No act. Don't crawl. Don't slither. Don't, 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 you don't have to do anything. And this is the stunning thing about it. You can be so bad and it be your own fault. And in our human condition, we think, I, this is my mess. I created it. I got to do something to get myself out of this because I, I dug my own hole. I made my own bed. I sleep in it. This guy was so bad, and it was his own fault, that Jesus looked upon him, not with judgment, with the most ridiculous compassion that you will find in the Bible. He asked this guy to do nothing. And when you read the the, the Desire of Ages, that is the most stunning in light of the fact that hope even sprang in his heart, but then disappeared. And the second he put his head back down on the the floor 
He's looking at the face of Jesus. That's it. 38 years, and right now he's looking at the face of God. You sometimes, I, feel that you have nothing. No faith. No power to act. And sometimes you are the person at that moment that gets to see the face of Jesus. You know, humans like to clean themselves up. I do. You do. But I want to say to you sincerely from my own heart, if that is the type of person and the condition that my life needs to be in to get the the presence of Jesus, the mind of God to single me out and to look down at my ugly face, then I want to be that man. That's a really good spot for an amen. If I have to be supremely wretched to get Jesus to show up in my life, even if it's my fault, if I have to be that guy to get God to look down on me, that's going to be one happy Sabbath. And I really want to impress you with the idea that it's when you need and when you're bad that God is there to look on you the most. So the man, like you and I would, I would think, like you and I would, stood up, picked up his bed, and started walking. Jesus disappeared in the, in the meantime. Verse 9 says, Immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the, what's it say? The Sabbath. We did not read verse 10, but we're going to go to verse 10 now. Oh, I did put this in my notes. I have to read this to you. I'm sorry. It's page 202 in the Desire of Ages. The sick man was lying on his mat and occasionally lifting his head to gaze at the pool when a tender, compassionate face, this is so beautiful, bent over him and spoke the words, will you be made whole? Those words arrested his attention. Hope came to his heart. He felt in some way he was to have help, but the glow of encouragement soon faded. He remembered how often he had tried to reach the pool, and now he had little prospect of living till it should again be troubled. I had forgotten that part, and actually she gives the sense that this guy was about to die. He turned away wearily, saying, Sir, I have no man. We all have a man. We all have at least one man. Everybody here, on the point of death, supremely wretched, your own fault, you still have one man. One man. I want to make three points to you as I go through this here. Point number one, for Seventh-day Adventists, we have to realize that Jesus' ministry was the people that are in need. It's not just to the people that want it. It's not just the people that agree with us or we think might agree with us. It's not that we should be afraid of rejection or all of those things. Our ministry, if it's going to be like Jesus, if we're going to have true success, our ministry needs to be to those people who need it. 
in the context of last day events, in the context of Revelation 14, if our message is to have any value, we must reach out to those people that need us. Let's go to verse 10. The Jews, therefore, said to him that was cured, It's the Sabbath day. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And there are, unfortunately, those church members who are uncomfortable doing certain things on the Sabbath because it doesn't fit their ideas of what's appropriate. And I'm going to state to you that virtually anything that meets a real human need in a spiritual sense would be perfectly appropriate for Sabbath observance. I'm not talking about raking somebody's yard necessarily. But I'm talking about real needs. The needs of the soul. The needs of the heart. The Jews had done so much to protect the Sabbath from being violated that they made good doing wrong on the Sabbath day. If I were to go out on a limb, I'd say we're kind of like that. We like on the Sabbath day in order to keep the day holy to protect ourselves from influences that would violate our holiness because people that we might help would be, you know, contaminating, contagious. So the Jews said, it's not lawful. Well, he answered, and I love this answer. Verse 11, he that made me whole, the same said to me, take up your bed and walk. And if I were that guy and I was healed and I had been paralyzed for 38 years and some guy healed me and I'm standing on my feet and he says, take up my bed and walk, then what am I going to do? I'm going to pick up that bed and I'm going to start walking. I don't care what day it is. He wasn't even thinking about the Sabbath day at that point. Come on. If you think about his religious experience, you think he believed in the Sabbath when all the church members were telling him he had been judged by God? Heck no. I don't want anything to do with a God like that would be my response. If that's the way you're going to treat me, then you have your day. He didn't know what day it was. He didn't care what day it was. He just had the face of God look at him and and is walking. He's going to take his bed and start walking. Praise the Lord. Say that again? Later, yes. Well, after he'd been healed, I think I'd know what to do too. They asked him, what man is this, verse 12, which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? And he didn't know. As we looked at earlier, Jesus conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto you. And that certainly suggests that what the guy had done had produced his situation. But the man did next, though, complicated Jesus' life. The man departed and told the Jews in verse 15 that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And verse 16 is one of the most interesting verses in all of the Bible from a Seventh-day Adventist perspective, from a Sabbath-keeping perspective. Verse 16 says, Therefore... Hold on, pause. Stop looking at your Bible. What does the word therefore mean? Because. It's a a cause and effect word. Because you did this, then that. Therefore, because Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath and the Jews could now identify Jesus as the healer, therefore did the Jews, what's it say? 
persecuted Jesus. Do you know this is the only verse in the Bible that identifies this, uh, this actually whole section right here, is the only verse in the Bible that identifies both of the reasons why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus? We're going to read them right here. The Jews persecuted Jesus because of the way he kept the Sabbath day. You will search all the scriptures in vain to find a verse that says they wanted to kill him because they were jealous of his popularity. They didn't like that he was popular. But you will search the the Gospels all day long and never find a verse that says they wanted to kill him because he was popular. Never. It goes on, and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Amazing. In Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 14, Adventists understand at the very end of time that those who keep the Sabbath would be persecuted because the world views Sabbath observance differently than God does. And in this story, it is very clear that the Jews, the professed believers, viewed Sabbath observance differently than God incarnate did. So who is breaking the Sabbath in this verse? Jesus? No, they were. Let's go on to verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father has worked until now, and I work. Therefore, the Jews sought the, what's the next word? The more to kill him. They sought the more to kill him because he not only had, what's it say, broken the Sabbath, but also that God was his father, making himself what? I want you to get this here. Jesus' claim to divinity was less of an issue to the Jews than what he did and how he kept the Sabbath. Let's just let that sink in for a second. They did not hate him primarily because of his claim to divinity. They did not hate him primarily because of his popularity. They hated him the most initially because of the way he kept the Sabbath. I cannot think of a more perfect parallel to what you and I will read in Revelation 13 and 14 and in the book, The Great Controversy, than those verses right there, verses 15, 16, and 17, is Adventist eschatology perfectly summarized to the T. You keep the Sabbath the way God wants you to keep it, and people are going to hate you and want to kill you. That's Revelation 14, right there, all by itself. I would like to make point number two. Point number one is that Jesus... Likes to what? You're not going to do very well on the quiz next week if you don't remember point number one. Jesus' ministry is to those in need. And number two, Jesus' whole life is a pattern perfect for those who live at the very end. Perfect. If I were to expand this just a little bit further for you, the Jewish hatred over Jesus' Sabbath-keeping custom was so identical, is so identical to the book Great Controversy, 
the religious Pharisees aligned themselves with the liberal class of religious folks, the Sadducees, who then together aligned themselves with the politicians, the Herodians, and dissolved the wall of hatred that they had with Rome, tore down the separation between church and state. You realize that the Romans were the ones that possessed the authority to kill another man in Israel? And until the church had reached out its hand to hold political power and unite church and state, they couldn't do anything about Jesus. Jesus' life is a perfect pattern for those who will live at the very end. Let's move on. In the Desire of Ages, she comments, page 208, on this story, the healing of this man. She says, The fury of the religious leaders knew no bounds. Had they not feared the people, the priests and rabbis would have killed Jesus on the spot. But popular sentiment was strong in his favor. Many recognized in Jesus the friend who had healed their diseases, comforted their sorrows, and they justified his healing of the sufferer at Bethesda. So for the time, the leaders were obliged to restrain their hatred. It says there, those are the most beautiful words, that Jesus was recognized by them as the friend. Go back to that quote that we read at the very beginning. Jesus' method alone will give what? True success. He mingled the Savior, mingled with men as one that desired their good. He gave them his sympathy. He won their confidence and then bade them follow me. Jesus had no problems with people following him because Jesus did so much to demonstrate that he was their friend. In fact, so much so that for the rest of this little study, we're going to look at some of the remaining cases where the Jews wanted to kill Jesus but was restrained. They were restrained by his popularity. Let's go to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we're going to read verses 47 and 48. This is now the year, Luke chapter 19 is in the year A.D. 31. This is uh, not right before the Passover, but it's getting close to the Passover of A.D. 31. Luke chapter 19, verses 47 and 48. Scripture says Jesus taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. But they could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to what? Hear him. They were restrained by the crowd. And Ellen White writes, Jesus was a helper to the helpless, a friend to the needy. He had daily manifest compassion and love for the human race. While he received the lowly, the sick, the poor, the afflicted, he presented, to the, he presented principles to the Pharisees, scribes, and rabbis that condemned their pride, their selfishness, and their self-glorying. These bigoted teachers were filled with envy because the masses turned away from their instruction to listen to Jesus. Why? Because he was their friend. They spoke evil of Christ and his doctrine. They had it in their hearts to destroy him, but they knew not how to do it because the people were so attentive to hear him. So attentive to hear him. Let's go one chapter over to Luke chapter 20. This is getting quite a bit closer, but this is uh, days or weeks before the Passover of A.D. 31. Luke chapter 20, verse 19. 
the chief priests and the scribes, the same hour sought to lay hands on him. But what's it say? The next uh, four or five words there. But they feared the people. Jesus' popularity among the people was so strong that it had handcuffed the religious leaders so that they couldn't actually persecute him. They couldn't actually do what they wanted to do because he was so popular. You want to talk about friendship evangelism. You want to talk about mingling with people as one that desired their good. This story, our our study this evening, started in John 5, two years before A.D. 31. For two years, follow this, for two years, the popularity of Jesus among the common people had delayed the pharisaical hatred that desired to kill him. The question I want to ask you is, what if, what if Seventh-day Adventists only take a doctrinal approach to reaching people? What if we don't do anything to show our communities, our neighborhoods, that we care about them? Will there be a voice of public favor in Adventist behalf? When the time of persecution comes and people don't appreciate the way we're keeping the Sabbath, and and as you read in the great controversy, Sabbath keepers are being blamed for the calamities that come upon the world, will there be someone at all to say, hey, why would you persecute them? Don't you know what they have done for us? Will there be a voice there that will, will restrain the hatred of the religious leaders? Adventists are so caught up on what the Pope is doing. We are. Every time there's talk of Sunday law, Adventists get all in work. If the public loved Adventists, recognized them as their friend, a church, a body of believers so indispensable to the community, would anybody want or allow religious leaders to do anything with us? Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. This is the weekend of the Passover. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verses 2 through 5. Jesus says, a couple pages flipping, I'll give you a second. Anybody not there? Okay, here we go. 26, verse 2. You know that, Jesus speaking here, you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who is called Caiaphas, and consulted regarding how they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, they concluded, they decided in that meeting, verse 5, not on the feast day, lest what? Jesus' influence in the public was so strong, even when the prophetic time period had come to be fulfilled, that they couldn't at all figure out how they were going to kill him. When the time God had foretold was there, we're two days out. The weekend he was supposed to be dead, the Pharisees were like, we're not touching him. We can't touch him. 
We absolutely cannot do It's time. Yeah, it's time. So what? We don't know how to do it. If you flip over to Luke 22, this is the same story as Matthew, but it adds a detail that Matthew does not have. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, it says, drew near. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill Jesus. But what's it say in verse 2? They feared the people. That's the same meeting that was described in Matthew. But verse 3 is very interesting. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being among the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how, they might, uh, how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. You know, you read in the book, that is, uh, The Great Controversy, that at the last days, when persecution is coming on God's people, that it'll be Adventists who defect from the church who will be our worst enemies. You read that before? I want to tell you something about Ellen White. Many Adventists think that Ellen White, and like The Great Controversy, the book, has some stuff in it that's not actually in the Bible. You know, like this whole Sunday law you know, national calamity, being persecuted because of the way we keep the Sabbath, you know, church and state getting together, you know, the whole America persecuting the world or, or, or forcing, you know, uh, Sunday worship on the whole world. Yeah, a lot of us think that, oh, that's just Ellen White, and it's kind of cool God gave us some extra info through Ellen White. Anybody here ever thought that? Come on here. You're telling me that each one of you thinks that everything that Ellen White wrote is in the Bible and you can prove it here this evening. Two meal a day plan. You know Ellen White says two meals are better than three, right? You read that before? Can you show me that in the Bible? The whole idea of church and state being united and persecuting God's people at the end of time before this evening, could you show me that in the Bible? I want to tell you something. Ellen White is perfectly biblical. The only problem that we run into is that we often don't know where she got it from. And when she says in the Great Controversy that former Adventists will be our bitterest enemies, yeah, read Luke chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. Jesus, this is a perfect, if we are listening to God, not to me, if we are listening, we will want public favor. And it will take a Judas for the public to miss us. Jesus' popularity was so strong that even when it was time for him to die, they couldn't have killed them, him at all without help. That's point number three. Jesus' popularity among the people hindered his enemy's plan to kill him. Now, I run an organic farm. And I want to talk about farming for a minute. And um, I want to make this practical. And I want to give you a couple stories that will illustrate perfectly what I'm saying to you here this evening. 
But I want to review the three points. Help you for your quiz next week. Point number one is Jesus' ministry is to those who are in need. Number two, Jesus' life is a perfect pattern for those who will live at the end of time. And since Jesus' life is a perfect pattern, we would do very well to become the friends of the public because popularity at a certain point, for good reasons, will hinder our enemies' plans to persecute us. I'd like to make it difficult for enemies that I might have in the future. And true success, I'm going to go back to that for a second. True success in reaching people will reward you immediately. But you will also be rewarded by it later. Can you imagine if we start winning people's hearts now? How that's going to affect us years from now? Can you imagine if you won the hearts of the Bakersfield, Bakersfield community... And yes, America wanted to persecute Sabbath keepers. If, if Bakersfield viewed Adventist as an indispensable, undeniable value to the community, would they care that you kept the Sabbath? Wouldn't you like to be perceived that way sometime in the near future? So one of the reasons why we started the farm on the campus of Fresno Adventist Academy was because I read in the Spirit of Prophecy a couple of things that I'm going to read to you this evening. Ellen White says, Let the care and cultivation of the land at Oakwood College show to unbelievers that Seventh-day Adventists are reliable and that their influence is of value in the community. One of the reasons why we started the farm at Fresno Adventist Academy was to demonstrate to the community that FAA was a valuable part of the community to improve the standing and the reputation of the school in the community. So since we've done that, and we're not a perfect farm by any means, we've got lots of problems, uh, lots of things to work through, I should say, rather, we have had countless people from the community call us. I got a call last week from a parent at a school in western Fresno. She says, uh, I'm looking for pumpkins. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't grow any pumpkins uh, this year. And she kind of said something else. Can't remember exactly what it was. And I'm like, hey, why are you looking for pumpkins? What, what's going on? She says, well, um, I'm a parent. My kids go to uh, William Soroyan Elementary School in uh, West Fresno. And our kindergartners uh, don't often get to go on field trips. And so uh, as part of Halloween weekend, we wanted to get some pumpkins for the kids and let them carve pumpkins and decorate them all up and everything. And I'm sitting there listening to this mother tell me a sob story about kindergartners not having any money to go on a field trip. And she told me uh, that she had called some other farms and had been shot down entirely. Okay? One farm told her, we don't do donations. We don't do donations for kindergartners, is what they were saying. Like, you okay with that? I'm not okay with that. And I said, lady, you give me a week, I'll find you pumpkins. Okay? She was very happy. I said, hey, by the way, if you're willing to do a little bit of work, I got a bunch of corn that's out in the field, and you could cut down the corn stalks. They're all dried up now, and you could use them to decorate. She's like, wow, really? I said, hey, in fact, actually, I got 130 chickens on the farm, too, and I could bring a few chickens over, and we could talk to the kids and let them pet the chickens and talk to them about chickens. And she's like, really? And then she told me, well, I don't know if the school would let you bring animals. I'm like, okay, fine. Why don't you bring your kids to the farm? And she was like, are you for real? We talked for a few more minutes, and then I got off the phone with her, and then I called her back a little bit later to ask her another question. And she says, you do not have to put in all this work for me. 
I said, lady, you don't understand. This is our mission as an organization to bless kids in this community. And she, she said to me, I am so shocked. I do not know what to say to you that you would do all of this. She couldn't believe it. Before that, we made friends. Uh, we actually have, we sell produce to the community. I made friends with one of the people that uh, subscribes to our program. I deliver produce to her house. We have a home delivery service. And as I made friends with her, her name's Jessica, made friends with Jessica and discovered that she works uh, at a charter school in Fresno. And uh, when she signed up, it was summertime and school wasn't in session. But when we got to school uh, being in session, she um, wasn't at home. And so she asked me to drop off the produce at her school office instead of at her house. And I said, okay, no problem. Uh, it's not out of the way or anything. So I made friends with her, which then got us to make friends with the other teachers at the school. And so they came to us and they said, hey, we would really like to build a school garden. Would you help us? I said, absolutely. Absolutely. Have made friends with a bunch of people there. And as soon as they're ready here, probably sometime this fall or spring at the latest, we're going to start helping a charter school, not Adventist school, build an elementary school garden project. At another phone call, uh, this was uh, last year, uh, 2015. I had made friends with a guy in the community who works for a local organization. He told uh, another person about us, and that person was organizing a bus tour through the Central Valley of California talking about agriculture as it relates to schools. And did you know in the state of California, more pesticides, uh, how would I say this? There are a large number of pesticides used in proximity to school campuses in the state of California. And Fresno County has the highest incidence of pesticide use in proximity to school campuses in the entire state. Use a lot of pesticides in Fresno County. Be grateful you're in Kern County. So they said, we're doing this environmental summit, um, environmental bus tour, rather. And we're bringing like 80 people through the Central Valley of California, people from the Department of Pesticide Regulation, people from the EPA, policy people that work in Sacramento, um, environmental um, group, uh, tree huggers. I'm trying to think of how to call them. Can we bring these people to your farm because your farm's on a school campus? said, absolutely. Bring them over. So we gave a tour, me and the principal. Talked to these uh, people about, about Fresno Adventist Academy, what we're trying to do at the school, and what we're doing with the farm, and why we're organic, and we don't use any pesticides around our kids. I'm going to read you another quote here. Still talking about Oakwood College. She says, it, the farm, if worked intelligently, is capable of furnishing fruit and other produce for the school. That's cool. The teachers, both in their work in the schoolroom and on the farm, should constantly seek to reach a higher standard that they may be better able to teach the students how to care for the trees, the berries, the vegetables, the grains that shall be produced. This will, listen very carefully. Are you listening carefully? I got one amen and a head nod. This will be pleasing to God and will bring the approval and respect of those in the community who understand the principles of agriculture. So what we're trying to do with the farm, uh, i got to read you one more quote here, but i got to find it. I didn't put it in my notes. 
What we're trying to do with the farm is reach out into our community. And what I want to suggest to you is not, I mean, yeah, we're starting a garden at uh, BAA, but there are a lot of things that this church can do to reach people in non-traditional ways and show them that you care. The question that I have is, will you do it? Will you make the effort to put yourself in a position that Jesus put himself in so that when the time comes, your community will know that you're valuable to them? Uh, Here we go. Talking about education, talking about teaching kids trades, like building, planting things, agriculture, construction. She says, A knowledge of how to cultivate the land will make rough places much smoother. This knowledge, let me back up a second and read that again. The knowledge of how to cultivate the land will make rough places much smoother. This knowledge will be counted a blessing even by our enemies. This little garden at BAA, is maybe one of the most significant things you could do to demonstrate to your community that you're valuable. They're valuable to you and that you're valued to them. I want to tell you more about that bus tour. Bus tour came and went. I didn't think anything of it. I thought it was fun. It was neat. I'm glad to have the experience. But it was over and it was done. About six, eight months later, I got a call from a girl named, um, I just got an email from her the other day. Starts with an M. Marcy, Maria, I believe it's Maria. She said, hey, um, you probably don't remember me, but I was on this bus tour that you gave a few months ago, and I work for an organization up in Sacramento, and uh, my boss has a son that goes to a school in Sacramento area, a private school in Sacramento, and they're doing this uh, environmental uh, week at their school, and their high school kids, and um, they're looking for someone who would talk to them about agriculture in connection with education. And can I pass the number on to you? Would you be willing to entertain? Absolutely, I'd be willing to go up there and talk to these kids. So I get on the phone with this, with this gal, and um, of course I'm curious what school it is. So I said, so well, what school is it? And she said, well, it's Jesuit High School in Carmichael, Sacramento, California. So I, I'm going to tell you something about myself and then I'm going to close. I don't like conspiracy theories. I find them to be unbiblical. And I don't know if that offends anybody here, um, but you will not find conspiracy theories in the Bible. The Bible does not tell you to worry about Jesuits, but Adventists like to talk about the Pope and about Jesuits a whole lot. And um, I was frankly quite floored, shocked, to get an invitation to speak at a Jesuit high school a Jesuit high school, period. I said, Lord, that's pretty cool. So I'm talking to the school coordinator. And I said, well, what would you like me to talk upon? And she's, you know, giving me some ideas. And I said, hey, I know you're a religious organization. And I said, one of my, this is the way I said it, one of my pet peeves is that Christians who profess to believe in a creator don't seem to care much about the creation. And so would you mind if I shared from a spiritual perspective? And she said, absolutely, please do. So in January of this year, my wife back there is witness, 
we drove to Sacramento to Jesuit High School. I stood in front of 300 Jesuit-educated boys. It's an all-boys school. And I talked to them about God's model of education and how he wants to educate the whole man, mind, academics, body, health, and soul. And got to preach the gospel of God's love at a Jesuit high school because we started a farm and wanted to reach out to our community and show them that we cared. I said to myself, actually I said to Vanessa too here uh, recently, it kind of dawned on me that if God started our ministry experience with a trip to a Jesuit high school, and we've only been doing this for a couple of years, then what can God, if, if God started there, what can God do if we're willing simply to love the people around us and do something to meet their real, physical, earthly needs just like Jesus did? I'd like to encourage you this evening with the fact that, number one, everything that you've ever been taught as an Adventist regarding prophecy is 100% true, and Jesus lived it as proof. Number two, if you follow his model of ministry, you will have a form of success that the word true doesn't really do justice to. You will have success as a church that will be just like Jesus' success. And you will find, we will find, that our enemies will have a very difficult time. A very difficult time. Even if they do hate us. Because public favor will be on our side as a church. As I said to you, the only question left is whether or not you'll do anything with it. You can today continue your normal round of ministry as you've always done it. Or you can decide to make a change and try ministering Jesus' way in whatever way you can, but try it Jesus' way and see the success that it will bring to you as individuals and to you as a church and to the school and our church corporately. Um, a little plug here. Uh, my wife and I have a little booth in the back, and uh, over the last seven, eight years, I've been studying the spirit of prophecy and everything that she writes on the subject of agriculture. Uh, for those of you that are interested in what was the first compilation of Ellen White's writings on agriculture, gardening, farming, whatever, it's all the same word, uh, different word, same meaning. Uh, we have some with us in the back. Uh, we'll be selling them here this evening, um, and those go to support us in our ministry. And I think you'll find them to be very enlightening and very interesting as it relates to education and farming. Uh, when it comes to farming, Ellen White writes about it in the context of two things the most. Number one is medicine. Number two is education. Not in that order. But when you read about farming, she's either talking about medicine or education and sometimes some other things. With the Adventist health message being what it is, there's no reason why Adventists shouldn't be interested in food, how it's grown, and where it comes from. No reason whatsoever. 
And with our educational philosophies being what they are, there's also no reason why we shouldn't be interested in it. So put a plug in for this, and you can chat with us in the back. Um, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here this weekend, remind you of the seminar tomorrow if you want to come out and do some hands-on stuff. But I'd like to pray with you and just encourage you again.